is used in describing that she was taken into Mordecai's care. So this is not consistent with the use of language in a sense to where she is taken against her will. But either way, we don't have the details, and quite frankly, it's, it's uncomfortable. I want to make this clear as we look at this part of Esther. It, it should make us uncomfortable in that sense, right? But this is not the point of the book of Esther. It is a point, it's a fact of the story, but it is not the point. And what we see here is just fleshly display after fleshly display. We looked at a parallel column last time together that Xerxes continues just to show through his actions that he has no concern for really anyone else. It's through this search that we see his lust on display. The actions that he takes are demeaning to women, demeaning to other image bearers, heaping shame upon shame upon those who are taken in, their futures taken from them. If he does not choose them to be his preeminent queen, then they are just abandoned to a life of really a, a hostage situation. They are virtually widows, uh, just put to the side unless he ever calls for them again. And I just want to draw out here again, just very quickly, that the scriptures teach the absolute opposite as we think about esteeming uh, and valuing not only women, but our wives and those that God has made as image bearers. We think of Eve as a helper alongside Adam in the original garden of creation, how God elevated her and gave her a role to serve alongside as a helper to Adam. We could simply look to the ministry of Christ and see how he treated women with respect and honor. He gave them the truth that they, they needed to hear, whether or not they, they wanted to hear it or not. And he did not, Christ, the true and better king, did not use women for his own gain or stand upon them as we see this earthly king Xerxes does. As we look here at Esther and Mordecai, we should be struck by the difference in how their lives are described, or better yet, not described. I am finding this part the hardest part about going through Esther, and it's in this sense. God is not mentioned in this regard. We've been pointing out his presence in the text. But it's here that we would go on and on about their great faithfulness to Yahweh. Here, the typical Old Testament character, you would draw out, highlight, point out uh, those things. But those things are, are not given to us in those ways. There's no mention of great faithfulness on their behalf. There's no mention of seeking the Lord in prayer or fasting and ascertaining His will, desiring to know the will of the Lord. In a very real sense, Esther and Mordecai are living, living in a broken Genesis 3 world. By the way, much like the one we live in right now. And what we find is, yes, while we are responsible for our sin, people are also living in the consequences of others' sins even before them. And it's in all of this that we see the beautiful display of God's love and faithfulness, His steadfast covenant love towards His people, His providential care. And we see that all of that given here in the text as he guides and leads Mordecai and Esther and redeems these situations. As we continue to move in this account, notice with me verse 9, we see the key phrase repeated. Verse 9, now Esther gained favor in the eyes of those around her. Verse 9, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace. Verse 9, now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor. Verse 15, now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. 
Notice, and Esther, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Verse 17, again, one more time, the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained, notice here, grace and favor in his sight more than all the others. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. We will not deny or neglect that there is an intrinsic part, no doubt, about her her personality that stands out. God has made all of us in His image. We have unique appearances. The Scripture is clear that Esther is a beautiful young lady. There's no doubt that she has a particular type of spirit and personality and attitude. We will not deny that. But what I want us to see is the very obvious and clear repetition that Esther is being elevated because of God's hand in her life. This language given favor in the eyes of those who are above her or around her, as we highlighted, is the language of God's working in the hearts of men. For example, Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. How? How was the Lord with Joseph? Now notice, as we pointed out, in Genesis, these texts are explicit. The Lord was with Joseph. Not so in Esther, but the result is the same. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. How? He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Favor. That's blessedness. Daniel chapter 1 verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Well, here we see in verses 9, 15 and in other verses, as we consider Esther's lot, one way of looking at what happened to Esther is that even though she's in a corrupt world, in a corrupt system, we see that God is the one guiding it all. God is guiding her steps, as we heard Proverbs 16, verse 9. A man's heart, we don't know all the reasons. If Mordecai, we do know that Mordecai is shrewd, he's, he's smart, he's an administrator, he's wise. We don't know if his plan was to try to, knowing Esther's charisma and his mind, thinking, listen, she has a good chance to gain favor, to get the king's heart. Maybe this was a design. We can't prove that or say that dogmatically. We can say this, a man's heart, Mordecai's heart, maybe, possibly. Esther's intentions, maybe, possibly. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And friends, be thankful that God's purposes override our purposes. Even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you don't want to recognize it or, or, or give Him the praise, you're disappointed. Whatever intentions you had in place, even when those things happen, bow to the sovereign hand of God in your life. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So we see here that Esther is given favor, favor that is beyond even her capacity to garner or to gather. But we also see in verse 10 that Esther has a secret, a secret that she does not reveal to the king or to anyone else. Notice, Esther has not revealed her people, the Jews, or her family, for Mordecai charged her not to reveal it. I think Mordecai senses and knows the the anti-Semitism that Esther would more than likely face, knowing that this, the, the charges would be stacked against her, the perception of Esther would be changed. Nebuch uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Xerxes is to only marry a, a girl within nobility. And so this is all a secret. This is their planning. This is their planning, their way, if you will. Verse 11, And every day, though, Mordecai 
paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Here we see his loving care, his concern. He himself feels that duty entrusted to guide her and to protect her. Esther is under the guidance of Mordecai as he keeps and she continues to keep her Jewish ethnicity a secret. But as we see in all of this, God has something greater in mind. Mordecai wants Esther to live in peace. Mordecai wants to live in peace. But more than peace, more than safety, God is going to raise them up to keep his people from genocide. Satan has designs as the prince and the power of the air. This is a battle that goes all the way back to the garden before time, you could even say, or right as time began. Satan, hearing the promised seed of a Messiah coming through the seed of a woman through the line of the tribe of Judah, listen, he knows that, and he knows the promise of God. He knows that God is sending a Redeemer, a Messiah, and his vengeance time and time again is to not only kill the Jews, to kill some Jews, but is to absolutely wipe out the Jewish people. And we see such a plot in chapter 3. So the king's search plan, number one, number two, the king's satisfaction pursued. Notice with me, number three, the king's selection presented. Verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian, had advised. Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight, more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her. This is Queen Esther. He set the royal crown upon her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Verse 18, Then the king made a a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And then he even went so far as to proclaim a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. This is a time of great celebration. This is a time of great garnering favor. Everyone loves this moment. This is a time of feasting. This is a time of gifts being shared. But yet, not all that glitters is gold. Notice with me in verses 21 through 23, we then see that the king's well-being is threatened. The king's safety is preserved. Verse 21, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, this is exactly what you think it is, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. We're not going to dwell upon the first part of that phrase. We're going to focus on the second part. Notice, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. This is elevation. This is advancement for Mordecai in this way. Archaeological discoveries have shown us that the king's gate was a synonym for an admin building next to the palace. This is a place where the king's officials would work. This is where his confidants and his royal appointees would carry out the business of the kingdom of the state. And here we're told that Mordecai sat within the king's gate. He is now elevated. He is now placed in this way. And it explains why he is going to and from the women's quarters, overseeing, listening, making sure that Esther is okay, that nothing is has happened to her. Verse 20, Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Notice 
that loving, tender relationship of father and daughter in that sense, that she is respectful, she is following his guidance. This is a little bit why some wonder if Mordecai has been the mastermind behind the whole thing. Verse 21, In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, who were doorkeepers, became furious, and they sought to lay hands or literally to murder on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both of the eunuchs were hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. Here we see a continuing narration of the story being given to us, and what a turn in the account. Mordecai, providentially, it just so happened, right? It just so happened. No, it isn't, didn't just so happen. We're continuing to point to God's leading and shepherding hand. Mordecai, ever the vigilant watch care, he is watching over Esther, overhears two eunuchs insane, angry, mad. They're not even thinking evidently about who might hear them. Mordecai easily hears them. They determine that they want to kill the king. Now, the text, I'm just full of questions. The questions that I want answered are not always answered, as we see. And I'm sure you sense that frustration at times. But we rest and that we have all that the Lord wants us to know. But I think it's easy to maybe, I say easy, conjecture as what these two eunuchs were mad about. If you were a eunuch, you'd be mad as well. And the, the history and Herodotus, the historian, tells us that regularly Xerxes was taking off potential young men off the market and using them as slaves, emasculating them and taking them and putting them as slaves for his purposes. He would elevate the best of the best and put them over certain areas, particularly his, his harem. So it's not easy to imagine why two just random eunuchs would be mad at this king. But what is revealed to us is they desire to kill him. They're tired of him. They're sick of him. And God has placed Mordecai in just this moment to overhear this plot. And what happens? He gives this news to Queen Esther, verse 22. Esther then in turn informs the king in Mordecai's name. Notice that phrase there. He gets the credit. And when an investigation is done, justice is served, these two men are found guilty and they're hung. Now, what should happen next is Mordecai, you would think, would be elevated in some way even higher. Uh, he has just saved the king's life. How is he rewarded? Well, the answer is, is he isn't. He's rewarded with, with more administrative duty. But someone else is elevated. Someone else is rewarded. Look with me now as we introduce chapter 3. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. And here we have yet another individual brought into this account. And this is a man named Haman. Haman is one of the most disgusted figures. He is one of the most ugly figures in the biblical record. And he's introduced to us here in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, and advanced him and set him or set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Here we see this man named Haman is elevated in really a way that is above every other man. He is, in a sense, second to the king. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. 
for so the king had commanded concerning him. But now we are beginning to see Mordecai's true character shine through, aren't we? And now we're seeing a Jew who is well ingrained in him to worship no other gods but Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel alone. And whether he's truly doing that at this point or not, what is clear is that he will not bow to an Agite. More about that in just a moment. He is not going to bow to a man named Haman. Haman the Agite. So we see here that they, he charged them to, to bow and pay homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then, verse 3, the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them. And they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now we see that this secret that he's been keeping, that he has charged Esther to keep, this is the line that he will not cross. He comes out with why will he not bow as everyone else is bowing. What does this remind us of? Reminds us of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar's command, right? Well, this is something he will not do. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Don't, don't miss that phrase, the people of Mordecai. So instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Hasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, a lot, before Haman to determine the day in the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples. And they do not keep the king's laws, O king. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain in the tenor of the texture is alive. If it pleases the king, verse 9, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So pompous king Xerxes takes his signet ring, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are all given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman had commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with a king's signet ring." And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, notice here, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. And that day would be on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as law 
in every province, being published for all the people, that they should be ready for that day. So the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. What an account here. What a Satan-filled man, what a, uh, an evil man as we see this portrait of Haman. Notice, number one, the advancement of Haman. It is approximately, we believe, four to five years have passed since the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 where the king's life is saved by Mordecai. Instead of Mordecai being elevated, a man named Haman, as we've introduced him, Haman, whose name means magnificent, one or illustrious one who does that sound like church well if you know your history if you know your background i don't say that to be condescending so please don't hear it in that way this sounds like lucifer doesn't it this sounds like the father of the wicked one the devil it was believed that haman's name was believed to be derived from the persian from the persian god who was a spirit possessing life-giving powers. Bottom line, Haman is a pagan. And in this text, he is a picture of pride. And so it's because of this throughout Jewish history and throughout history in general, his name is synonymous with Satan. What were the reasons for his promotion? Why does chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 begin to introduce Haman to us And simply the fact that he is being advanced. Again, Scripture doesn't give great detail, but it's believed that he was possibly promoted because of his connections and his wealth. And that is not a surprise. His promotion brings out not the best in him. His promotion brings out really the worst in him. And I want to hit pause here and just make a parallel, not officially, just just want to show this how this parallels. Our men have studied this same parallel in our Bible study together. But according to God's kingdom, Matthew chapter 18, according to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus teaches his disciples and Jesus makes clear that those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are entrusted with and tasked with to serve the least. Those who would follow God's pattern of leadership, responsibility, and promotion. What it really means is to lay down your life for many. We, we've considered that as men, God has called us to lay down our lives for those around us in the sense of protection, provision. As husbands, God has called us to lay down our lives for our wives, those that God has given to us in covenant marriage. It's not to lord over them. It's not to oppress them, to crush them. But it's to lay down our lives for them. That privilege is given to us by God to serve, even as the Son of Man has not come to, to be served, but to serve. Amen? You see, this is the pattern of God's design. This is God himself, James' language. God resists the proud, but James 4, but gives grace to the humble. Yet the way of the flesh runs counter opposite to that. God in Psalm 8 begins to introduce this prophetic psalm, that what is man that you are mindful of him? The writer of Hebrews picks up on this language and it makes very clear that at the beginning and the foundation of the world that God declared his purposes to the angelic realm and the angelic order that he would one day in his future kingdom exalt one of man, verse Psalm 8, one who's 
made a little lower than the angels, and he will exalt him. And we know the full revelation of Scripture and truth. Who is that man? It's the one and only man, Christ Jesus. And that is the one that will be elevated. And as Christ comes, as we study week after week, in Matthew's Gospel, we see his humility on display. We saw it this morning as we turned over to Philippians 2 and looked at how he set aside, in a very real sense, his glory. And yet, in Matthew 17, his glory shines forth in the midst of his humiliation. Christ humbles himself. And we must follow our Lord and Master in this same way. And those who would seek to be first in the kingdom of God will be last. And those who are last will be first. Satan's ways are the exact opposite. Satan learned and heard of God's plans and purposes. And Lucifer said, absolutely not. And I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version here. A creature is always tempted to look up and to lust after and to covet what is not theirs. And that is exactly what happened to Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Lucifer looked up and he, in his heart, spoke within himself, I will rise, I will ascend, I will take the throne. I reject God's wisdom. I reject God's plan. There's no way that I will be serving man in any way whatsoever in any future kingdom. That was the spirit of Satan. So what is the way of Satan? Well, look no further than Haman. Look no further than Haman that when entrusted with responsibility and privileges that Haman does not use his position to serve the people. Haman demands that they serve him. And you say, well, wait a second. Isn't that what Jesus does? Listen, there's only one king and he will not share his glory with another. And by the way, he is not only the king who reigns, he's not only the king who sits on the throne even now interceding for his people, but he is the king who came to serve. And he laid down his life as a ransom for many. That is something that Satan would never, could never do. And that is why he is Satan. Simply put, two, two words, the way of Satan is the way of pride. The way of Christ is the way of humility. And so what we see here in Haman is a tool for Satan. Satan is going to use Haman to seek for wisdom and for acclaim, to seek for praise, praise that belongs not to him, worship that that belongs not to him, but worship that belongs to God and to God alone. We see his promotion brings out evil, brings out the absolute worst in him. And what we also find is it brings out the best in Mordecai. To this day, when the Jews read the book of Esther at the Feast of Purim on an annual basis, it's interesting to see videos of the Jewish people or to go to a synagogue or to go into where they do this, that many people will respond verbally out loud. They will boo, they will hiss. They will decry, they will scowl, they'll even stomp their feet at the very mention of the name of Haman. Many will respond with the refrain, may his name be blotted out every time his name is read. It creates quite the scene, but it's interesting. Who is Haman? And we'll consider for the last moments of our, our study tonight, who is Haman? And, and why should we give him any more attention than what we're doing? Well, look back in verses 2 and then also in verse 10. In other verses here in our text, 
The Holy Spirit wants us to know Haman the Agite. It's an interesting word to say, Haman the Agite. Well, that sounds familiar, and it should. When we go back into the history of Israel, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? They were the sworn enemy of Israel. They were the first enemy of Israel, in a sense. Go back with me just briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Take a moment. Let's go back, and let's take a moment to review uh, this historic enemy of Israel. And let's make a connection as we go back and then build back up to the text and make the connection to Israel. To Haman. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. Hear, hear what the Lord says to his people. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Verse 18, how he met you on the way and how Amalek attacked, notice here, your rear ranks. No, just let's just pause. This is quite the group. This is overestimated to be, some say, 1.5 million. There's no way to quite know. We know probably definitely over a million people uh, walking in, in a sojourning way coming out of Egypt. And these, th- these, these peoples, the king of Amalek, comes together, verse 18, and they come and they begin to attack the weakest. Who's in the rear? All your stragglers at the rear, the elderly, the little ones, those who are going slower, those who are great with children. You know, remember how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at the rear when you were tired and weary. And remember how he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. This is an order, by the way. In the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, don't forget, remember now, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. You, notice here, you shall not forget. But here's the problem. What is Israel's besetting sin? Forgetfulness. They forget everything. You know, we we get perplexed as we look at ancient Israel and you say, like, what is their deal? How, it's really quite easy. If I had been a slave, we say, you know, if I had been under Pharaoh and life had been that hard as we know it to be, my goodness, man, if I was just set free, mm, you'd never see me complaining again. You'd never see me, and on and on we go. But that's just kind of funny, isn't it? We're so hard on Israel. But what about us? We've been brought about. The new birth has saved us. We walk in newness of life in you would think that we would never sin again. The bondage of slavery and sin is broken. We've tasted and seen of the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. Then why do we struggle so much? Why are we as well prone to forgetfulness of the goodness and the kindness of God? Well, notice what God says. You shall not forget But that is exactly what the Jewish people throughout their history did. They were to be a totally destroyed people. And they were to be totally destroyed for the way that they treated God's people as they were coming out of Egypt, attacking not the strongest or meeting at the front, but going for the weakest and the elderly and those that could not defend themselves. And God has no tolerance for that. God not only has no tolerance for the taking of life, in unjust ways, 
But listen, if you wonder how God feels against in this particular way, he makes clear to the children of Israel, you shall not forget. You better wipe them off the face of the earth. Well, we find in Genesis 36 that they originally descended from Esau or from Edom and that they were hostile towards Jacob's descendants because Jacob, of course, you know the story, had stolen the blessing from Esau through trickery. Of course, when you look in Scripture, Esau's that that classic uh, parallel, that character, that connection, just like Haman is, of the fleshly man or the, the carnal man, the physical man. As we look ahead and continue through the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find that King Saul had his chance and his opportunity as given orders by the Lord to destroy the Amalekites and a man named King Agag. And you remember, this is the pivotal moment in King's, King Saul's kingship and his sovereignty where God disavowed and turned his back and his blessing, the Holy Spirit's power. He took his hand off of King Saul. Why? Because King Saul knew better than God. Again, how did he know better than God? God told him to destroy the Amalekites, a command he's been giving all the way back for hundreds of years. And King Saul allowed King Agag to live. You remember the account. You remember the story. We don't, we're not going to turn back and look it up. But it's a classic text. By the way, on the Grace Books table, as you leave tonight, there's a little booklet for $1 called Hacking Agag to Pieces. You need to get it. And if you don't get it, I'll be disappointed. Trust me, it'll be the best thing you read this week. And it's just profitable. I won't say any more. But I would encourage you to get it. It's fruitful. It's helpful as we think about attacking sin in our life. Well, here, Saul, Samuel comes upon the scene and he hears the bleeding of goats. He hears animals that were to be destroyed and he asks Saul about them. And ultimately, Saul reveals in a feigned way, I was being obedient to the Lord. And then Samuel says, well, what is the bleeding that I hear? What is this noise that I hear? And Samuel finds out that King Agag is still alive. And you know what Samuel does? He takes Saul's sword and he hacks Agag to pieces. Listen, the Bible is serious in these ways. God has been telling his people to deal with these Amalekites and now we see that because of Israel's disobedience, this ongoing saga continues even until this day. And we will see in our study of Matthew's gospel, it goes all the way to the trial of Jesus and Herod. Where does Herod come from? He comes from Edom. He comes from Esau, all the way back in his lineage and his heritage. Now, don't let it be lost on you. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. When we saw Mordecai's lineage... Don't forget, what was revealed to us? Well, we saw how he was related to Shimei. Remember, Shimei was the blasphemer, the cursor of, of David in his, Absalom's rebellion. Remember, Abishai said, let me kill him. And David said, no, absolutely not. Perhaps the Lord has sent him to bring this judgment and to judge me in this way through his cursings. Chapter 2, verse 5, he was related to Saul, the Benjamite of Kish. Here we have Mordecai who can trace his heritage all the way back to King Saul who was supposed to kill King Agag and didn't. And now we have Haman, Haman who was the, what was he? The Agite. Friends, if you think for a second that there are wars taking place that are beyond what we can understand, comprehend, and see, they're happening right now at this very hour on the Gaza Strip. Take 
take take it to the bank in ways beyond what we can even comprehend. There's surface level comprehension, but listen, stand amazed when we learn of these truths of how God is working, how he's worked here, how he's worked there, and how he's working now. But we're going to find in this story that God raises up Mordecai for just this moment. God raises up Esther for just this moment. Before we close, let's complete this point number one. Haman is promoted to prominence. Here in our text, we see this involves three things from the king. First of all, verse one, he is exalted. Notice the text tells us, His seat was set above all the other princes. Again, we're not told why this sudden uh, being being brought to glory. We're just simply told that he is exalted in this way. Then in verse 2, we are shown that the king's servants and all those around were charged to bow and to give homage and reverence to him. We could call this to give him esteem. And then notice that in our text, the king commands that the hearts of men revere Haman. If you have to tell people to revere someone, more than likely they're probably not able to be revered. More than likely there's a problem here. And the more we learn about Haman, there is serious, serious issues in this way. So number one, the advancement of Haman. Well, mentioning Israel this evening, our hearts are heavy as we see what's happening in current events around the world. We see a war at place but friends, I think we all know, not being over the top and alarmist, but anytime there's war in Israel, anytime there's war involving uh, that nation, we, we need to be interested. We need to be paying attention. We need to be praying, and not in a mystical way, and not in a hyper-alarmed way. In the most basic spiritual way, we pray for the gathered church all over that land who believe in Christ as the Messiah, who faithfully gathered in their bunkered cell and wherever they were today in hiding and worshiped Jesus as the true Son of God. We need to pray for that church. Uh, This war continues even on to today. So may we have that spirit and may the Lord lead us in those ways even this week. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word in this text, and we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We thank you, Lord, that you raise up men and women who are unknown, that are out of sight, out of mind, but you are pleased to use the base and least things of this world uh, in ways that confound the wise, in ways that bring you great glory. And you do this so that no flesh may glory in your presence. Father, we stand in awe of your uh, wisdom. We stand in awe of who you are. You are worthy to be praised. Your ways are not our ways. You are God, and you, Lord, show this in so many ways by sustaining us as your people. But, Father, we stand amazed at your wisdom, and we thank you for teaching us from your word all day today and helping us as we look at these testimonies of your grace and faithfulness, your sovereignty and your providence in the lives of your people. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.